Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme. Philip Love was the last private owner of Marley House before it was bought by Dublin City Council in the 70s. He was a market gardener, a horse breeder, and at one point, the largest tomato producer in Ireland. He's most well-known as the owner of the horse Larkspur, who seemingly came from nowhere to win the Epsom Derby in 1962. This is a poem imagining his life in the house. Naming the Foals It is the darkest time of the year in the Northern Hemisphere, months before the growing season, and I am casting about for names. The birth date is always January 1st. A name must be found before February of the second year. Six names, listed in order of preference, for someone else to decide. Each name, no more than 18 characters, no initials, no trade names, no numbers, except those above 30, and only if spelled out. No name that's already in use or that's ever been named. No words like colt or filly. No racetracks or famous winners. I carry a book for writing down names as they come to me. When pruning back the winter garden, glancing at the clock, pouring a drink. Sudden flight. Traveler's hymn. Blind faith, praise the painter, second harvest, merchant's dream, constant optimist. I bought a heater before Christmas to take the chill out of the air in me writing studio. A dainty little fan heater in pearl-white plastic. It hummed softly in the corner and I could feel warm air moving around the room. That was the last thing I did before diving into the glittering mirage of jingling bells on Christmas Eve. And I didn't open me studio door again until the festival was over. Me wife woke early on Boxing Day and her first words were, Thank God that's over. We say that every year. But the fuss and anxiety never changes. It comes and then it goes and we wake up the morning afterwards with a kind of relief. The in-between days, just after Boxing Day and before the New Year, are empty. The sky is painted in watercolours. 
and I spend hours staring at sad flickering lights in the garden and wondering not just where Christmas has gone, but where my entire life has gone. Myself and my wife break the shells of our eggs in unison. We enjoy the physical harmony of animals who have spent a lifetime together. Where does it go? I ask her sometimes, but she doesn't reply. Instead, she just offers me another slice of toast. Over the years, Christmas rituals have woven our separate lives into a single fabric. We have observed the same tedious rituals year after year. We have shared Christmas turkeys with Granny and other loved ones long gone to eternal rest. We've shared plum puddings with couples who are now divorced and we pulled dozens of crackers with our children before they grew up and went off to feed their own horses somewhere far away. The cyclic nature of Christmas is reassuring. The repetition of things is comforting. To know that life is a wheel of beginnings and endings, and that we return to the same old beginning each January. Christmas vanishes like smoke, from a quenched candle, like snow from a rope, and the empty January sky becomes a refuge as the light stretches ever so delicately towards the shoots of a new crocus in the grass beneath the beeches. I sit by the window as the afternoon fills up with sleeping cats, and I sense in the renewal of sunlight that I am forgiven once more and free to begin again. I realise that soon the sun will rise higher and the spring will arrive without my efforts or anxieties. In short, I have nothing to worry about. One Christmas when I was ten years old, I worried a lot because I broke the Virgin Mary statue by letting her fall on the mosaic floor of the cathedral as I was carrying her enormous plaster weight to the crib where she was supposed to hang out for the festival. She skittered along the marble for three long metres. Her hands were scratched, and I worried that the priest would wallop me across the same marble floor for being so careless. But no one except me noticed the damaged fingers of the Holy Virgin as she knelt in frozen prayer for the entire twelve days of Christmas, gazing in porcelain equanimity at her equally porcelain baby in the manger. I endured that Christmas season in terror, because back then the crib meant a lot to me, and to desecrate it was like undoing the universe. But then I grew up, and like many more in Ireland, I abandoned the infant and the angels and saw the dead plaster statues for what they really were. We still put up a crib on the mantelpiece, but when people come to call, they rarely notice it, except to wonder why it's there. Nowadays, the season is bloated 
with realism, opulence and digestive delights. I must wait until January to find poetry now, because in January the earth turns around, shifting the heft of its hope towards the sun, and the sky is so empty and watery that almost everything feels possible again. When I returned to work, my studio was like an icebox. I was glad I had bought the heater before the holiday to take the chill out of the air, the dainty little fan heater in pearl-white plastic. It hummed softly in the corner, and I could feel warm air moving around the room. I pressed the power button on the computer and waited for the screen to light up. And as the dainty white fan heater in the corner pushed air around the room, I noticed the lace curtains moving. And for no reason in particular, it reminded me of an angel's feather, just after the angel has gone. It was the week between the Christmas of 1973 and the New Year of 1974. Those sleepy days when the festivities are still in full swing, but the energy is sagging and sugar overload is taking effect. The previous summer, my parents had been to America to visit my brother and his family, and I'd asked them to look out for a copy of Jim Croce's then-latest album, Life and Time. And they did, bringing back a copy wrapped in cellophane, as American albums were in those days. In September of 1973, the singer was killed in a plane crash. His record company released a posthumous album on December 1st of that year, an LP called I Got a Name. And my brother sent me an early release copy which landed in mid-December. And so it was in that week between Christmas and New Year that I borrowed my father's car and drove to Dublin to see friends, bringing with me the two Croce albums. Those were the days when people did the now unthinkable. They sat around drinking coffee, listening to LPs, reading the lyric sheets, turning the album when side one ended and going through the whole ritual again once the album had been heard right through. On that evening, with two Jim Croce albums to hear, rehear, lyrics to discuss and dissect, particularly the title track of the newer album, and songs like Lover's Cross, Age, and I'll Have to Say I Love You in a Song, it was well into the small hours before I finally hit the road. The night was clear, 
and the moon was a waxed crescent as I drove out of Dublin, heading for home. The only radio station I could pick up at that hour was the BBC World Service, and it came and went, depending on the lie of the land. I was 21 years old, and speed held no fear for me. Not that my father's A40 was capable of travelling particularly fast. I was wrapped up in listening to something or other on the radio as I descended the hill into a small town not too far from home. At the foot of the hill, in the middle of the road, stood a solitary guard. He waved me down and came slowly to the open car window, flashlight in hand. He was a young man, probably three or four years older than myself. He asked where I was coming from and where I was bound. You were going fairly hard down the hill, he said. I couldn't deny it. My best excuse was a poor one. I probably missed seeing the speed limit. It seems like you did. You'd have been quite a bit over the limit now. I said nothing. Are you long driving? Three years. Is this your car? My father's. Right. And then a silence hung in the air like a forgotten bauble on an abandoned Christmas tree. The flashlight beam travelled across the passenger seat and found its way onto the back seat of the car. The guard perked up. Is that a Jim Croce album? he asked. Two of them, I said, leaning over and handing them to him. I knew life and time was out. I have a copy at home, the guard said. But I didn't think I got a name was released here yet. My brother sent me a copy from the States. Another silence. Do you like Jim Croce? I asked. I love him. Love the songs. Life and Time is a great album. By torchlight, he scanned the tracks and I got a name. Looks good, he said. It is, I replied. I think it's even better than Life and Time. Another silence. Jeez, I'd love a copy of it, the card said. I could tape it for you and drop the cassette into the barracks here. Would you? Yeah, sure. I could drop it in the day after tomorrow. That'd be brilliant, he said, giving me his name. I'll put it in an envelope. He handed the albums back to me. And listen, he said earnestly. Take it handy with the speed limits, will you? I will, I said. And then he waved me on. Two days later, I drove back to the town and dropped the cassette into the barracks. The young guard wasn't there, but his older colleague nodded. I was told to be on the lookout for this. Isn't it amazing what music can do? It is, I said, blushing. And uh, happy Christmas or happy new year or wherever we are in the year, the older guard said, winking and smiling. Happy Christmas to you, I said. And I silently thanked Jim Croce for his seasonal support from the wide blue yonder.
I know it's kind of late I hope I didn't wake you But what I've got to say can't wait I know you'd understand Every time I try to tell you Embrace, National Gallery, Dublin They squint at canvases are greedy, Tangier, the white city, Fontainebleau, sun, the blinding light of Palm Springs. They want it all, to lounge with the languid sunbathers on their cushions, to be cooled by the shadow of John Lavery's umbrella. But the man by the rowers at Grez stops so suddenly in the middle of the gallery that I wonder what exactly it is he wants. Such a lonely figure he cuts to, dazed among the punters who are so rude that brazenly obstruct each other's view. When out of the blue he flings his arms open and from a bench comes a woman with feline grace. I might be the only one who sees them embrace. But then there's the painter with his young daughter reclining in their own framed affection. How knowingly they gaze at this sudden love in a hot and teeming room. Where the Drumcliff River in North Sligo empties into the sea, a conveniently placed information board at the water's edge offers glossy depictions of the birds that favour these salty wetlands. I stand a while, enjoying the tranquil sounds of their real-life counterparts in the estuary, waders and waterfowl that plash and trill and dabble and do what birds do to fill their day. Across the channel, the shadowed slopes of the opposite headland stretch as far as the lower Rosses. It was amongst the cottagers and fishing community of the lower Rosses that the poet W.B. Yeats gathered many of the folk tales that went into one of his most significant early books, the Celtic Twilight, published 130 years ago in 1893. Where the people of the Lower Rosses were concerned, said Yeats, this landscape was choke full of ghosts, headless women, men in armour, shadow hares, fire-tongued hounds, whistling seals. Yeats's Celtic Twilight, as that quotation might suggest, is a whimsical and relatively slight effort at folklore collecting in comparison, say, to the work done by Lady Gregory and Douglas Hyde. But its title became indelibly associated with the Irish literary revival. The revivalists happy to embrace the young poet's work to further their own aims to hold 
a non-violent line against British imperial cultural domination. Yeats himself shared these ambitions, but he was too restless and too weird to be a true Irish revivalist. His life and work did, however, span and articulate this tumultuous epoch in Irish history. For his efforts, the Swedish Academy awarded William Butler Yeats a Nobel Prize in Literature 100 years ago this winter. A literary anniversary that has sent me on this hike about the parish of Drumcliff to think again of Yeats and what to do about him. As a full-time writer living in Sligo, the difficulty Yeats presents is that every feature of the surrounding countryside summons a disembodied voice in my head that blurs the distinction between the landscape before my eyes and the Nobel laureate's poetic landscape. My immediate identification of Lore Ross's with Yeats's Celtic Twilight, a case in point. As someone with imaginative claims of my own on this terrain, how am I to deal with this legacy, this all-encompassing, pre-existing, linguistic overlayering? The poet's father, John Butler Yeats, once said that where talent perceives difference, genius sees unity. And perhaps that's where to start. As a penniless art student in Sligo, I had been thrilled to discover that the Yeats, whose poetry had been set texts in school, had himself started out as an impoverished art student. On my visits to Dublin in the early 1980s, I had two regular haunts in the cobbled back streets of the yet-to-be-gentrified Bohemian quarter of Temple Bar. The eager beaver was an Aladdin's cave of vintage clothes, a ready-made costume hamper for aspiring micro-budget non-conformists. While for books on mysticism and occult philosophy, it had to be the alchemist's head on Lower Essex Street. Still in his twenties, Yeats had rapidly worked his way up through the obscure hierarchies of the London occult scene. He'd found kindred spirits amongst foppish young poets and free-spirited women with a taste for headbands and clothes with a flouncy oriental flourish, crisscrossing the city in long coats on their way to seances, table wrapping sessions and secret society meetings. But Yeats differed from his fellow practitioners of ritual magic in his willingness to mix Sligo folklore and Irish heroic myths with the occult trends then in vogue in London and Dublin. The strangeness of his ambitions matched only by his determination to keep his poetic calling at the centre of his life. I was never so involved in occultism or Irish politics, but I remember now the strong affinity I'd always felt with this proud, determined, unconventional and idealistic young man. 
identifying too with his social awkwardness, his daily struggle to make a name for himself, to find sex, love and a source of income that did not involve the dulling grind of ordinary employment. So why should I consider him a threat? Why not embrace the senior Nobel laureate's respect for the power of tradition and local tradition at that, while steadfastly committed to mastery of his craft. For what, in the end, can any writer do when another, more famous author puts such a powerful and durable imaginative stamp in the minds of readers, in the cultural memory and on almost every aspect and feature of the place where you live and find your inspiration. You take stock and then you press on. out to the hazel wood because a fire was in my head and cut and peeled a hazel wand Well, it's the last day of the year. Janus stands poised on the crest between midnight and morning weighing the past and gazing towards the future. And traditionally, we celebrate. For centuries, we have gathered together to count down the minutes until we can sing and hug each other and shout Happy New Year to everyone we meet. Family and friends, fireworks and phone calls, champagne and auld lang syne. For many people, it is their favourite time of the year. But there's a lot going on in the world. And in our personal lives too. And for some, the outgoing year isn't so easy to look back on. And it may not be so easy to look ahead to the new one either. Sometimes, especially at the turn of a particularly dark year, it can be hard to jump up into all that lightness. Sometimes we're so preoccupied with grief that just smiling and saying hello can feel like a challenge. I have a friend who lives with depression and especially at this charged time of the year, he just wants to hibernate like a squirrel, resting in a quiet corner until all the noise and razzle-dazzle of Christmas and the New Year have passed. And Christ can come, as Patrick Kavanagh put it, quietly, with a January flower. We don't all do what my friend wants to do. Sometimes we join in with all the gaiety and good wishes no matter what we're feeling. Some of the brightest people gathered under the big clock are the very ones who have struggled hardest to get there. They're missing loved ones who are gone far away. They're worrying about keeping a roof over their heads or about finding a roof over their heads. They're dealing with illnesses or difficult relationships. They're tired, tired, tired from having worked so hard in the weeks leading up to Christmas. Or... They're like my friend who lives with depression, just about managing to smile. For them especially, may this turning of the year bring peace. And for those who feel only delight at reaching another shining milestone, 
may this turning of the year also bring peace. We are all in this together, even if it can feel at times that we're not. Everyone knows loss and fear, loneliness, rage, helplessness, sorrow, despair. What I wish everyone also knew is that things do find balance again. We've seen it before. We've lived it before. We know from experience that there will come a moment when the sun rises and something, some tiny thing, will make us want to smile again. We mightn't know how it will happen or when it will happen, but darkness will have yielded to light. So this is my prayer for this demanding moment. May we all know some lightness this year. May we try to be kind to one another, to the world, to ourselves. May we love and may we feel loved. And whatever way this year turns for us, may we keep on keeping on, doing our best, coping our best, and smiling, if we can, when those nearest to us need us to. Somewhere deep in our hearts, may we know what the poet Derek Mahan knew despite his own experience of darkness, that everything is going to be all right. Everything is going to be all right, a poem by Derek Mahan. How should I not be glad to contemplate the clouds clearing beyond the dormer window and a high tide reflected on the ceiling? There will be dying, there will be dying, but there's no need to go into that. The poems flow from the hand unbidden, and the hidden source is the watchful heart. The sun rises in spite of everything, and the far cities are beautiful and bright. I lie here in a riot of sunlight, watching the day break and the clouds flying. Everything is going to be all right. Everything is going to be all right. On this morning's programme, we heard Naming the Folds, a poem by Grace Willens. Absent Angels was by Michael Harding. Christmas Music by John McKenna. Embrace, a poem by Enda Wiley. Yates Country by Brian Ledden. And Everything is Going to Be Alright by Sharon Hogan. The music was... Coupling Those in a Hyrus, played by Zoe Conway and John McIntyre, composed by Steve Cooney. Saints and Angels, by Sharon Shannon and the Waterboys. I'll Have to Say I Love You in a Song, by Jim Croce. J'ai Du Amour, by Josephine Baker. And, and Yeats' Song of Wandering Angus, also by the Waterboys, from their album An Appointment with Mr Yeats. The exhibition mentioned in Enda Wiley's poem, Lavery on Location, runs at the National Gallery of Dublin until the 14th of January. And Enda and Peter Sir will be co-presenting a poetry programme tomorrow evening here on RTE Radio 1. That's Stanza, presented by Enda Wiley and Peter Sir, and it's at half past seven on New Year's Day. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon and the producer is Sarah Binchy. To listen back to this morning's programme, go to the RTE Radio app or to the programme website. 
You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the program on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.